it's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I remember the first day of training camp. I was in the office, and I was gathering up my stuff, and Jackie came walking by and said to me, so, well, how do you feel? And I remember saying, I'm not sure I'm ready. And I'll never forget, Jack said, well, get ready. And our guest today, NBC Sports Philadelphia, Sports Radio 94 WIP, Philadelphia legend Ray Dittinger. Ray, thanks for stopping by. Pleasure, Matt. As we're recording and as this will be released, we're leading up to the NFL draft. Uh, It's obviously a busy time of year for you, but could you imagine if I told you 30, 35 years ago that the NFL draft would become its own cottage industry that you would have believed it? No, wouldn't have believed it at all. Um, It's... Well, it sort of tells you a lot about the whole growth of the National Football League over that period of time. But I don't know that any aspect of the NFL has grown quite the way the NFL draft has grown. When I when I first started covering the Eagles, which was 1970, um, the NFL draft was, I mean, it was small t- small print in the back of the sports section. You know, you, it went over two days, uh, and you, you wrote one story about the top pick, and then everybody else was in that small agate type, and that was it. Uh, but then ESPN came along, uh, and that's really where it started. I mean, ESPN was just desperate for programming. I mean, they were just putting this sports network on the air, and they needed something that could fill the time. And boy, the NFL draft can fill the time. So they started televising it live, never thinking that anyone would actually sit and watch it, but the numbers were astounding. And so then it just grew from there. And then that spawned all of the Mel Kuypers of the world that do their draft annuals and their scouting reports and all that kind of jazz. And that's when people began talking about draft nicks, the people who locked themselves in the basement and spent months preparing for this. So, yeah, it, it just grew like crazy. And now it's, you know, it's sort of the NFL second season. I mean, when this, when you play the Super Bowl, what's the first thing people talk about? Well, Got to get ready for the draft. And that's kind of where we are. But did, did I see it coming? No. Was there a moment a that you realized it had turned the corner? I mean, you, obviously you mentioned the, the TV, but for you personally, when somebody wanted information or you got an interview request, you're like, wow, this has become really more than I ever anticipated. Yeah, I guess uh, by the late 70s, um, the scouting had become much better. The scouting systems had become a teams had gotten better at it, uh, and there was just so much more information out there. I mean, back in the '60s, and then as I said, early '70s when I started covering it. I mean, the Eagles would draft guys. I had no idea who they were, you know. And I'm not talking about like the twelfth round. I'm talking about the fourth round. They'd draft a guy and say, "Oh, really?" You know, that that'd come out with a, pr- and that's really how it came out. I mean, it would you'd be sitting in a room at Veterans Stadium. Uh, and the Eagles PR department, the PR director, Jim Gallagher, every time they'd make a pick, he would come out with sheets of paper and just hand you a sheet of paper and say, in the fourth round, the Eagles selected, you know, Robert Jones, defensive tackle from Grambling. I mean, it could have been anybody. I had no idea who they were. I mean, now you know everything. You know your height, the weight, the 40 time, their vertical leap. I mean, all of that stuff. Uh, so, I mean, the teams are prepared for it better, but also with all of this information out there, I mean, we're, we're going to be arguing about 
in the in the seventh round should they have taken the long snapper from San Angelo State over the punter from Mansfield State. And people will be arguing because they feel like they know that guy. So let's talk about you. Was sports writing always the goal growing up? Was this always the direction you knew you were going to go in? I think so. I mean, it was the first thing that I really wanted to do, that I honestly, honestly had a true ambition uh, that, I, yeah, this is this is something I would really like to do. And I mean, at, at, a, at a young age, at an early age. Now, are you ever going to be able to pull it off? You know, I, that I didn't know. But, yeah, I thought it was – I at a pretty early age – uh, I had teachers telling me that they thought that I that I could write and that I should be serious about my writing and I should really work at my writing because they thought that I had uh, a knack for it. And Lord knows I had a tremendous interest in sports. I was a huge sports fan. So by the time, really by the time I was a freshman in high school, I kind of looked at that and said, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could take this thing that I kind of do, which is writing, and put it together with sports and make the two of them work together. That would be, you know, that would be the perfect world for me. Um, so that was kind of what I wanted to do. So all through high school, I kind of worked at it, uh, worked a little part time at the Delaware County Daily Times, uh, and then decided right away I wanted to try journalism in college. And I went to Temple and had four really good years at Temple. And by the time I graduated, there was no question in my mind that that was what I wanted to do. What's the first step after graduation? You mentioned Delaware County Times. Was did you use that as your first foot in the professional door out of college? Uh, yeah, but but uh, it was more coincidence than anything else. When I uh, my senior year at Temple, when you're in the spring of your senior year and you're now starting to really look for a job, you're starting to put, dip your dip your toes into the real world. Uh, I was looking around for uh, to get a start in a newspaper business, and I, ideally, I wanted to start locally. I didn't really want to move away. And so I went to the Delaware County Daily Times, and uh, uh, I met with the editor, and uh, we sat down and we talked, and he offered me a job. Uh, and uh, but unfortunately, they the Delco Times at that time they only had the sports department was only three guys, so they weren't looking to add anybody to the sports department, but they needed a reporter for news side. So he said, "The only thing I can offer you is a position as a news reporter," and I figured. You know, hey, foot in the door, you know, just just get a job and work your way up from there. So I did. I took the job as a news side reporter, uh, went to work. I still remember I started at $100.25 a week uh, and uh, covering – and I was a low man on the news uh, – on the city side uh, totem pole. So I was, I was covering all the stuff that nobody else wanted to cover. But that was fine. I mean, it was a great learning experience. And I, and I, I was there for – Almost exactly one year, and the Philadelphia Bulletin called because I I had worked a little part time for the Bulletin my senior year of college, and uh, the sports editor there, got a wonderful man named Jack Wilson, had told me that's where I really wanted to go. I wanted to jump right from college to the Philadelphia Bulletin sports department, and Jack said, "You know, you're not ready yet." He said, "But uh, he said you go get another job, get some experience, let's stay in touch, and you'll be hearing from me." And sure enough, it's almost almost one year later to the day after I was working at the Delaware County Daily Times, Jackie called and said, how would you feel about coming and working at the Bulletin Sports Department? So I did, and I went there to cover high school sports. But the, but the one year I spent at the Delco Times, I look back on it as being tremendously valuable. I mean, it isn't exactly what I wanted to do right out of school, but I learned a lot about how to be a reporter, going out to cover stories that you weren't all that interested in, 
stories that you didn't know any background on, but you had to prepare. And 1968, that was not the summer of 1968, was a, a presidential election that year. And so all three, three presidential candidates, Humphrey, Nixon, and George Wallace was running as a third party candidate, all came through Delaware County on the campaign tour. So I got to cover, you know, the, the presidential campaign. So that was a really great education that one year of just really learning the nuts and bolts of real reporting as opposed to just going out and covering a game. It really taught me a lot about being a reporter. So that when I finally did get the opportunity to go to the Bulletin a year later, I really felt like I was much better prepared for it. So Bulletin Sports Department, where you had wanted to be. So at 22, 23, do you feel like you've arrived? Sure did, yeah. And I, um, I remember walking in there. It was the, the Bulletin building was at 30th and Market Street. The building still stands. It's now been taken over by Drexel University. But it's the, it's the real handsome uh, gray building right across the street from 30th Street Station. And I remember walking in the newsroom and, uh, and seeing my desk uh, in, the, in the sports department. And it was the desk right next to Sandy Grady, who was the, who was the sports columnist, who had been my idol. When I was, when I was just a kid reading the, the bulletin every night when it got delivered, I couldn't wait to rip, up, rip out the sports section or read Sandy Grady's column. And lo and behold, I walk in and Jack says, at your desk there. And it was the desk next to Sandy Grady. So, I mean, it was, I've often said this, but it really is true. I mean, I really felt like somebody had just been called up from the minor leagues and given the locker next to Babe Ruth. I mean, not only am I working at the Bulletin, but I'm working right next to the guy who was my writing idol. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was really exciting. Feel any pressure? <clears throat> oh, sure. Every time I sat down to write, I felt like I had to prove myself, you know, because you're on a, you know, at that time, the Philadelphia Bulletin was the largest afternoon newspaper in America. Uh, and uh, the circulation was just enormous. Uh, and it was a much bigger paper than the Inquirer at that time. Uh, I mean, it was the paper of record. I mean, the, the expression that was on the side of the building. In Philadelphia, nearly everybody reads the bulletin. Uh, and it was true. Uh, so every time you sat down to write, I mean, you knew you were writing for a big audience. And, uh, yeah, I felt... I felt like every time I sat down, I had to prove that I was I, I belonged there. And then after I only was there for one year covering high schools, and the gentleman who had been covering the Eagles, a guy named Hugh Brown, who had been covering the Eagles for years, retired. Jackie gave me the Eagles beat, which shocked everybody. I mean, people in the whole building couldn't believe, because there were so many more senior guys there, that Jackie had just handed the Eagles beat off to this kid who was 23 years old and had only been covering high schools. It was an enormous leap of faith on his part. And you talk about feeling pressure. That was pressure. That was really pressure. I, I remember the first day of training camp, I was in the office and I was gathering up my stuff and getting my notepads together and getting ready to drive up to training camp, which at that time was at Albright College in Reading. And Jackie came walking by and said to me, so, well, how do you feel? And I remember saying, I'm not sure I'm ready. And I'll never forget, Jack said, well, get ready. Um, so it was his way of saying, look, I've given you a big opportunity here. You know, uh, so, you know, don't make us both look bad. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so, so that's uh, so with that ringing in my ears, I got in my uh, little red Pontiac Firebird and drove out the turnpike to Albright College and started uh, started covering pro football, and here we are almost 50 years later, I'm still covering pro football. That first training camp, did it feel like everything was going a million miles an hour? Oh, God, yes. Oh, 
I felt so out of my depth. I felt so in over my head. I, I was really scrambling because I was all the all the same kind of anxiety I felt a year before when I was covering high schools, feeling like, boy, I have to prove that I really belong here. Well, now that's amped up 20-fold because now the stories you're writing about are about the Eagles and everybody cares and everybody's paying attention. So, yeah, that was uh, uh, that training camp. And the other writers were not exactly welcoming to me. You know, it was very competitive atmosphere, uh, and nobody's helping anybody, and they're certainly not helping the new guy. But a great thing happened for me that first training camp. The Eagles had uh, an assistant coach named Charlie Gower, uh, who had been with, who was an assistant coach on the 1960 team that had won the championship, and a very, you know, sort of an old wise man of football type of guy. And I had been up there, but we were about a week, maybe two weeks into camp. And every day I'm writing three, four stories, just pounding them out, just trying to prove to everybody that I was kind of up to speed, but faking it the whole time. <laughs> and so one day we're walking off the practice field, and uh, Charlie Gower comes walking over to me. We really, he hadn't even spoken to me before that, but he comes walking over to me and he says, You know, he says, uh, I can, he said, You seem like a nice boy. And he said, and I can tell you're trying really hard. He said, but you don't know a damn thing about football. And he said, but I'll tell you what. He said, I respect the fact that I can tell you're really working hard at this. He said, every night in the dorm, in my dorm room, I'm watching film. And he said, if you want to come up there once in a while, just sit in with me. I'll try and teach you a few things. He said, you don't have to. Said, it's up to you. He said, but he said, if if you're interested in learning a few things, I think I might be able to help you. So I did. And I would go up to his room in the dorms. Back then, you were allowed to do that if you were in the media. And I would sit with him and I would watch film. And he would just show me things. And showed me that, you know, while I had watched a lot of football and I really thought I knew a lot about football, there was so much more nuance to it. And there was so much more strategy to it than I ever realized. And I learned so much about football that summer in, in training camp with, with Charlie watching film. That that's really what, I mean, my growth in terms of being able to understand the game and write about the game jumped tremendously. And it was purely because he was a very nice guy. And Lord knows he didn't have to do that. I mean, he had his hands full just trying to coach the guys he was coaching. But um, I'll always be grateful to Charlie because he, he helped me out at a time when I, could, I really needed the help. Did you feel comfortable after that, like once you get into the regular season and you're kind of seeing things differently, or are you still kind of chasing yourself? Oh, that was that's true. Yeah. I felt like in terms of the X's and O's, I, I learned a lot, and I felt like I was far better equipped to, to write the games. But the other stuff, which in, in the 70s, the game was really changing. Players were starting to get agents. You know, players were starting to hold out for contracts. I mean, stuff that you'd never really seen before. All of a sudden, the, the, the pro football kind of turned a corner and became more of a business right at about that time. So a lot of the business stuff uh, was things that I, I said, okay, I kind of got the X's and O's down now, but I got to learn about the business of this. You know, I got to learn who the agents are, you know, and what's, how the contracts are written. So that was the next step in learning how to do it. But the thing was, I, I just, I really loved it. I, I really loved it. I felt like, I felt like, you know, this is really is what I'm meant to do. I do think I'm probably in the right place. I just need to get a lot better at it. I got to grow and I got to learn, got to educate myself. But 
yeah, this this is what I really want to do. And certainly, if you're going to be a sports writer in this town, the sport you want to cover, you're only going to cover one. You want to cover pro football, and uh, I knew that right away. Now, the team was the team was really bad in the early '70s, really bad. Uh, I mean, the first I was the regular beat guy for seven years. And uh, went through that whole period and didn't have a single winning season in seven years. But then Vermeil came in, and uh, pretty quick you kind of saw that this guy has a plan. And this guy's – if they give him enough time, if they give him enough time, he's going to get this thing turned around, and he did. Do you remember your first scoop? My first scoop? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was – as these things very often happen, it was more by accident than anything else. It wasn't – Great reporting on my part. The Eagles had a defensive end named Mel Tom. Very good player. In fact, he was such a good player that he really kind of wanted out of Philadelphia to chance to go someplace else. And one day, you know, we were just walking across the campus on our way to the dining hall. And he said to me, he said, you know, I'm, my contract, is, if, if they don't give me a new contract, I'm, 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 going, I'm walking out of here. You know, I, I'm, not playing, I'm not playing for that. So... I had a scoop, you know, Mel Tom threatening a walkout. Now, that was very early. That was maybe week two of, of training camp. And, again, it's, this was no Woodward and Bernstein operation. <laughs> this, was no great, this was no great journalism on my part. I mean, he and I are walking to the dining hall to have dinner, and he just drops his bombshell. But he dropped it. He could have dropped it in anybody's lap, but he dropped it in mine. So, yeah, that was my first scoop. One of the things that I remember best about that first training camp, never forget this, <clears throat> that year the Eagles had drafted John Carlos, who was the, uh, the, the sprinter who uh, became famous at the 1968 Summer Olympics but he was when he and Tommy Smith did the black glove thing on the, on the medal podium. And the Eagles used like a 15th-round draft pick on John Carlos. John Carlos had never played football before. But he was 6'3", he was 210 pounds, and he could really run. So they figured, what the heck, let's take a shot. So they used a draft pick on him. He came to training camp in 1970. And he literally had never played football before. So... The first day of practice, uh, I'm walking through the locker room. Again, different time. You were actually allowed in the locker room before practices. And I'm walking out of the locker room, and I look down this row of lockers, and there's John Carlos uh, standing there, and he had all of his equipment on the floor around his feet. And he's just standing there in his, in his jock, but he has nothing else on, and all of his football gear is on the floor around him. I said, you got a problem? And he said, I don't know how to put this on. I look around. All the other players had already, they were already on the field. Coaches were already on the field. Don't Only me and him. So I walked down there and I said, okay, these are thigh pads. These go in your pants in these little pockets here, okay? These are hip pads. These go around here. I actually dressed John Carlos for his first NFL practice. I'll always remember that. I mean, here was a guy that was so new to the game that he literally didn't know how to put his uniform on. How long did he last? They actually were so intrigued by his potential that they kept him on what was then called the taxi squad for a year. They kept him around for a full season, hoping that he could absorb enough that that he could make himself into a competitive NFL player. And I'll give Carlos credit. He he really worked at it. Uh, He really tried. Uh, And and he he wasn't exactly welcomed by the other guys on the team. The stigma of 68 in Mexico City was still was still right there. And there were a lot of guys on the team that resented him for what he did. 
it was a, it was a largely white team then, as opposed to an African American team. And he was really an outcast. A lot of the players didn't think he was a football player, didn't belong there in the first place. A lot of the guys, especially the southern white guys, really resented what he had done in Mexico City. So he didn't have many friends. But he hung in, and he earned their respect because he really worked at it. And they gave him a full year to kind of learn. And then the next summer they brought him back, hoping that the next training camp he'd kind of like be up to speed. And it was very interesting. At the end of training camp, he went all the way through the preseason. At the end of training camp, the last roster spot came down to a choice between John Carlos and a rookie from Southern University named Harold Carmichael. And Harold Carmichael was, I mean, he was a green kid too. I mean, he was 6'8", and I mean, skinny. And there were a lot of people didn't think that he could play in the NFL either. But the coaches kind of looked at the two of them and said, eh, you know what, let's go with, let's go with, let's go with the big guy. So they kept Harold Carmichael, who, who went on to only catch more passes than any receiver in the history of football. Kind of worked out. Yeah. <laughs> when did you, I mean, I don't think, in the newspaper business, you ever feel comfortable, especially with what what it must have been like in that time, uh, chasing stories and all. But when did you finally feel like, I can do this, I belong here, and I can, I can keep doing this? I think, honestly, that I felt really confident, really confident in what I knew and what I could do by year three. I'd, I'd say the first two years, I was it was trial by error. You know, I, I was I would try things, and some of them would work, some of them wouldn't. I really was learning the game as I went along. Over the course of two years, I developed contacts around the league. I got to know some people in the league office. I kind of got plugged in, and I just felt like by the third year, I kind of really had my feet on the ground. The first two years, I was kind of just trying this and trying that, but by the third year, I felt like I knew the game. I felt like I knew the league. I knew most of the players. I, I struck up a very good relationship with that next coaching staff that came in, the Mike McCormick staff. A really good group of guys, McCormick, Walt Michaels, Boyd Dowler. It was John Sandusky. They were a really good coaching staff. I felt very comfortable with them. And so by then, I'd kinda, I felt like I really kind of settled in. And I really, I really, in terms of my own level of confidence, every time I sat down to write, it was, it was there to a far greater degree than it had been before. How much fun was it? to be just a reporter in Philadelphia at that time. I, I mean, aside from being on a beat like the Eagles, but just you mentioned the bulletin and their circulation and the inquiry and, and, and every, it was such a different media landscape then when, when print was, was really king. What was it like to be in the middle of that? It was great. It was really great. I mean, it was everything you said. There was no, you know, there was no sports talk radio. There was no ESPN. There was no Comcast Sportsnet. If people wanted information, the only place they could get it was the newspapers. And you had the Bulletin, you had the Inquirer, you had the Daily News, uh, you had the Delaware County Daily Times, Camden Courier Post. I mean, you had a, you had seven or eight newspapers that were covering these teams every single day. And the competition among the writers was fierce. I mean, it's not that way at all now. I mean, heck, the Bulletin, I mean, the Daily News and the Inquirer basically putting out the same paper every day. Back then, we were, it was, I mean, it was, it was a, blood battle every day to, to try and beat the other guy. We all respected each other. We liked each other. It didn't carry over in any kind of hostility in the press box, but we were fiercely competitive to always beat the other guy to the story. And uh, yeah, it was exciting. It was, it was a real exciting time. And the other thing that happened was this was a little off my beat, but uh, the Flyers won the back-to-back cups uh, in 
you know, that was the off season for football. It was the spring. And unlike today, where there really is no football off season, back then there really was a football off season. I mean, they pretty much shut down. So paper was always looking for something for me to do in the off season. And so those two years when the Flyers got hot, they put me as like the third guy on the Flyers beat. So I got to ride those two rides to the Stanley Cup both of those years, and that was that was really exciting uh, to to see what how much that that whole team energized this city, and how the, it was such a foreign game at that time. A lot of people say you didn't know the first thing about hockey, didn't know, wouldn't know a blue line from a red line, but they knew that that team that that team was rough and tough and they liked that and that they won and they liked that a lot. And so those two Stanley cup runs that paid off in those big parades in the city, which was the first time we'd ever seen that to actually watch it happen and then actually get a chance to cover it. That was, you know, that was, that was really a great time. I, I still remember that first flyers parade. Uh, it was when I came back to the bulletin office that night, the flyers had beaten the Bruins in the, to win the cup on a Sunday afternoon at the Spectrum. I went back to the Bulletin 30th and Market Street to write my story. The whole city's like people are in the streets. It's really a big, big deal. So I get back to the Bulletin. I'm writing my story. And the editor comes over and he says, listen, we heard that there's that they're thinking about having some kind of a parade or something tomorrow. Could you call somebody from city government and see if there's any truth to that or what they're planning? So I call, make a bunch of calls, and I finally get the city representative, a guy named Harry Bellinger, on the phone. And he says, yeah, he said, we're, we're going to have some kind of like a parade or something. I said, I don't think, you know, we don't really expect that many people to show up that, you know, I mean, who, who knows anything about hockey in this town? So, so I said, okay, well, how many people are you planning for? He said, well, you know, we're telling the police to think about possibly 100,000 people, but we don't think it's going to be anywhere near that. But, you know, we're going to be prepared anyway, and it's going to go up. It's going to go up Broad Street, and it's going to go to the uh, to Independence Mall. Is where it's going to be. Well, of course, and you know, two million people showed up. The city was just overwhelmed. I mean, they just weren't. They didn't expect that at all. But they should have because the the, the city, the sports fans in the town, had been through such a bad time. I mean, all the teams had been just dreadful for a long time, and when the Flyers broke through. I mean, you didn't have to be a hockey fan to want to celebrate. So all of those people came out that day. And it was, I mean, it was just amazing to drive through that, drive through the city streets and have the people like hanging out the windows and throwing confetti. Like now you kind of expect it, but then it was totally unexpected. And it was, you know, it was, it was unspoiled and it was, you know, and it was sort of, sh- it was sort of ragged around the edges. But I think that's one of the things that made it really beautiful. I remember riding in a, a the press bus and sitting in the seat next to me was was Joe Watson Sr., who was the father of Joe and Jimmy Watson, who were both defensemen on that team. And he was this burly, burly, Paul Bunyan-esque looking guy with a big beard, and he was wearing flannel shirt and suspenders. And he come, he came, he had taken a bus from Smithers, British Columbia, all the way down to Philadelphia to watch the Stanley Cup playoffs. And Smithers was a town of like 800 people. And here he is in the middle of this parade in Philadelphia, 2 million people. And I remember him looking around in total wonder and saying, I didn't know there were this many people in the world. (laughs) I have many, many memories of those Flyers Stanley Cups, but that's, that's probably my favorite. We will, we have to take a break. We'll have more with Ray Didinger after this. This is one-on-one. 
I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. And we are back on One on One talking with Ray Dittinger. We've talked about the newspaper career. I think, how many books? 10? 12, actually. 12 now? Mm hmm. When did that appear on your radar? Like, as a writer, did you always figure that would be an outlet that you would uh, move into in some form? Or how did the first book come about? Um, no, I, I didn't plan on that at all. Uh, in fact, the idea of writing a book just seemed too mammoth to me. You know, I've had enough trouble writing a newspaper story. I was, people always joke, and it's, it's, not, it's more than a joke, it's fact. I'm, I am a slow, slow painstakingly slow writer. I mean, it became sort of a little bit of a joke among in the press box that, you know, I was always the last guy out of the press box. So it was sort of, you know, hey, Ray, when you're leaving, turn off the lights. And that was true. I mean, that was true. So the idea of, of actually sitting down and writing a book, I mean, I never thought I could ever do it. But I got an opportunity. Uh, the first one was uh, like 1971. A gentleman who was a writer for the Atlantic City Press named Sonny Schwartz. He was a columnist down there had gotten a contract to write a religious book about a, a guy who was one of the first really uh, active guys in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, the FCA. And he was the first sort of overtly uh, Christian football player. So there was a religious publishing house that wanted to do a, a book about him. And Sonny had done a book like a year earlier about a, a about a singer who was from Atlantic City who had fallen off the wagon and then saved his life and turned it around through religion. So he had done a book about him for this religious publishing house. And now they wanted to do a football book about this gentleman who was a tackle for the Miami Dolphins, the great Dolphin team, the Don Shula Dolphins. And his name was Norm Evans. And Sonny didn't know a whole lot about football, but he wanted to do the book. So he contacted me and said, would you be interested in doing this book with me? I said, okay. So we, you know, Norm Evans came up, we spent some time together we interviewed him we, with, with the old tape recorder. We recorded his life story, and then we sat down and we wrote a book about it. And it came out, and it was called On God Squad, the story of Norm Evans. And um, that was it. I mean, that was I – mean, I don't think I ever would have gone out and sought a book on my own. But the fact is Sonny came to me and said, do you want to give this a try? And I did. And uh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. It was a good story to tell. Norm was a, a wonderful man. God, what a, what a – just a sweetheart of a guy he was. And actually, I said, you know, this is actually kind of fun. So then a few other books followed. And then in 2005, Temple University Press came to me with the idea of doing an Eagles encyclopedia. They had done a Phillies encyclopedia years before, which had been pretty successful. And they said, well, a Phillies encyclopedia can succeed in this town. Certainly an Eagles encyclopedia can. So they asked if I'd be interested in doing it. And I, I knew it was a a big job. I mean, that's a big, big job to do the whole history of a franchise that's been around since 1933. So I said, I'll do it, but I need somebody to help me out with it. So Bob Lyons, who had worked for Associated Press that I knew, I said, how about Bob Lyons? Because he had just done a book for Temple Press on the Big Five. We got together. Bob says, yeah, I'll do it. So we split down the middle and we did the first Eagles Encyclopedia. And then uh, we did a second Eagles Encyclopedia. And then after the second encyclopedia, I said, you know, I think we're probably good unless they win a Super Bowl. <laughs> if they win a Super Bowl, we probably want to go back and redo it. And lo and behold, two years ago, they won they won the Super Bowl. So I had a 
revised the whole book. And by that time, sadly, Bob Lyons had passed away. So I kind of had to do it all on my own. So I had to write, what was it? 68,000 words in four weeks to, to make the deadline to get the book out in time. But we did. So that, I guess that's kind of the book that I always wanted to write was the book about the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. And I've, I finally got that opportunity. I wanted to ask you about the original Eagles Encyclopedia. Obviously, you've got a wealth of knowledge and notes, and you've lived through so much of it. But where do you start on a huge project like that that is so encompassing? How did you start it? It helped tremendously that I am a big saver. People sometimes kid me about my notes, and it always whenever they see me, I'm, I've got a whole table spread out of my yellow legal tablets and my books and records. But that's true. I mean, I, I do. I've been covering this team for almost 50 years. I've saved almost everything, scouting reports, press guides, play-by-plays, all that stuff. And I have it all filed in my house. <clears throat> so the idea of taking on the Eagles Encyclopedia wasn't as daunting as you might think it was because an awful lot of the research was right there at my fingertips. Uh, now, the older stuff, you know, the, the 30s, the 40s, that we had to go back and, and dig it out. But the Eagles have a lot of it. They have it uh, – at that time, they had it in like a – they had moved to the new complex, and it was sort of in a shed out behind out behind the building. We had to go in there almost with miners' helmets and dig some of this stuff out. But uh, it's there. I, the thing is, I, I had covered the – I had followed the team from the time I was a little boy. Uh, so even before – I started covering them in 70, but I've been following them since 1954. So a lot of this stuff and, – and I knew anecdotally – about the Van Buren Benaric years, you know, so I knew kind of all that. And the thirties into the early forties wasn't exactly great history anyway. So it isn't like, I mean, you had to cover it. You had to talk about how the team started and all, but the real meat of the story starts with the, with the team of the late forties that won the two championships. And, you know, that was, I mean, it was before my time, but not that much before my time. So I was able to pick up on that pretty well. And also at that time, a lot of those guys were still around. You know, Chuck was still around. A lot of those guys were still around. A lot of the guys had lived that history and could talk about that history. So it was a big job, but um, because I had saved so much stuff from 1970 on, I was able to get my arms around it pretty quickly. So we talk about writing for newspapers. We talk about books. I think most people of the younger generation know you from radio and TV. What was your first introduction into the electronic media? It was when WIP was born, uh, when WIP came about, when they when the format changed from being music to being all sports. Uh, when they launched it as an all sports station, they needed people to put on the air. And so they went to the newspapers and asked some of the guys that were on the newspapers, would they be interested in coming over and doing some radio? And so Angelo, Cataldi, Al Morgani, Glenn Macnow, me, Stan Hockman, all went over and, you know, gave it a try. And, I mean, no one – there was very little coaching. No one really told you, you know, what you're doing right or what you're doing wrong. They just kind of plopped us down in a chair, turned the microphone on, and let us talk. So that was that was kind of how it happened. I had done a little bit of radio when I was at Temple. Uh, I'd worked at WRTI, the campus station. I'd done some of that. But I – I, I never really thought that I was going to go in that direction. I mean, I, my thinking was, now oh, I'm going to be a writer. But the opportunity to do a little radio came along, and I tried it, and I enjoyed it. And uh, what, it, what it, I don't think any of us really thought that it would last. I mean, we kind of thought that it would just be a phase, and 
you know, they would try this sports talk thing and it would run its course in a few years and we'd just look back on it and say, oh, that was fun. But lo and behold, I mean, here we are all these years later and sports talk radio is everywhere. And to your point of what you were talking about earlier about how how print and how newspapers drove the sports agenda in the market once upon a time. Well, now it's clearly radio. I mean, sports talk radio is where people go. I mean, in the morning, people turn on Angelo Cataldi. I mean, he's he's now he's now the daily columnist, except instead of in print, it's on the radio. How about TV? TV was um, really came about kind of by accident in uh, 1986. There was a newspaper strike in Philadelphia. The newspapers shut down. We all thought it would be, you know, three, four days. Didn't think it would be a big, long, drawn-out thing. Uh, Well, it turned out it went for six weeks. The local TV stations, with no newspapers at all, uh, all the local TV stations expanded their news coverage. And part of expanding their news coverage was they began bringing some, some of the newspaper reporters in to kind of do on TV what they would have been putting in the paper that day. They were kind of, they were kind of columns on television. So Channel 3 uh, asked if I would come in and do sports commentaries during that time. And uh, I, had never, I had never really done TV before, and it was pretty terrifying uh, to, to be asked to do that on the fly. But I did it and uh, learned a few things, and uh, by the time – the strike went on and on and on and on and six weeks. My goodness. By the end of the six weeks, when the strike was finally settled, the news director, Channel 3, when you know, I went in to say, hey, listen, thanks. This was fun. I'm going back to work now, you know, said, we'd kind of like to keep you on here. I mean, kind of, how did you enjoy this? And I said, well, it was fun. He said, well, how would you like to stay on and just do commentaries from time to time? And I said, sure, why not? So the guy who was the sports producer at that time, was a fellow named Tom Statakis, uh, and he was the guy that had really kind of worked with me and helped me produce pieces and find video and all those things. As it turns out, a few years later, when Comcast Sportsnet was launched, Tom Statakis was put in charge of, of Comcast Sportsnet, and when he began putting a staff together, he called me up and said, how would you like to come on and, and we're going to do an Eagles postgame show. How would you like to be part of it? So I, that was how that happened, and uh, – it's funny. I, I mean, I tell, it tells you how little I know about television. I mean, I told Tom at the time, I said, well, okay, I'll come and do this. I said, but nobody's going to watch this show. So it's going to be, first of all, it's not like a, a Phillies post game where you don't have to change the channel. Phillies, you're watching the Phillies game and post game comes on right then. Sixers, Flyers, same way. I said, an Eagles post game, somebody's going to have to actually pick up a remote and change the channel and come to us when there's going to be like live games going on on other channels. I said, nobody's. we're not going to be able to show any highlights. It's just going to be like three guys sitting at a desk talking. I mean, who's going to watch that? I'll do it, but nobody's going to watch it. Well, again, it sort of speaks to Philadelphia and their insatiable appetite for pro football that they put this thing on the air. And it's me and the mayor of Philadelphia (laughs) and Tom Brookshire and Michael Barkan and people watched in, in crazy numbers. And it's, and here we are all these years later, we're still doing it. How long did it take you to realize that that show had become part of the fabric, really, of, of Philadelphia sports, that Eagles game, and they flip over to, to you guys. The whole Ray Diddy thing, that's, <laughs> that, was, that was the proof to me, was that it was on that set that Vaughn Hebron began referring to me as R. Diddy. 
and which we all got a big laugh out of. But then I would walk down the street and everybody's people are rolling down the windows of their car hollering, hey, R. Diddy. And so, I mean, I, that's when I began to realize, my goodness, people are, are watching this show in real numbers. I mean, they, they were telling me, they would say the ratings on it are this and that, and they were really good. But it's just, it's, it's that moment where you're walking down the street and somebody just stops and starts referring to you as R. Diddy that you begin to realize that uh, this thing has really caught on. And all these years later, we, you know, it still is. Um, and and the, the ultimate really was was the Super Bowl in Minneapolis. To, to be to be doing the post game show from that stadium after that game, uh, and to know how many people back in Philadelphia were were sharing that moment with you that was really special. That was that was really special, really powerful. How has that Super Bowl win changed the fan base, if at all? Do you think? I don't want to say. Some people said it's made them softer. I don't. I don't think that's exactly the right word. I, I would say I think it's made them more uh, forgiving. Um, I mean, listen, they won the Super Bowl. They they started the opener, the home opener, the next year, and they they were poor in the first half, and they got booed going off the field at halftime. So this the city, the fans here have not gone 180 degrees soft. They haven't. But I think there's. Uh, I think the fans here. I, I, Forgiving is the word I keep coming back to because last year was a very tough year for this team. And I really do think the uh, idea of a Super Bowl hangover was, was it was more real than I thought it was going to be. I mean, all that talk about it, I thought, ah, you know, come on. You know, these guys still, I mean, they're professionals. They have a lot to prove. You know, they want to win it again. And I, I sort of bought into the idea that you win it once, you want to win it another time. But I, I do, I really do think they're, I, I really do think that you, you watch the preseason you watch the early part of the season. There was definitely a malaise with that team. I mean, the Wentz injury had something to do with it. His late comeback had something to do with it. But really, there was just something off about it all. And um, the fans didn't come down on them the way I think they would have in other years. Because there was a lot of that feeling. How many people did you hear say, I never thought I'd ever see this team yeah. win a Super Bowl? I, I heard that all the time. You know, I, I never thought I'd ever see this day. I never thought this team would ever win me a championship. And there was sort of a... You know, they kind of did it for me, you know, and so they were willing to cut them a little slack. And then last year, down the stretch, when they rallied and made the playoffs, I think people really got excited about it again. But early in the season, when they were when they were struggling to try and get their footing, the fans, I think, were willing to be a little bit more compassionate than they ordinarily would be. The frustration level normally in a typical year, if they start Bailey, the frustration level is there week one, and it just builds and builds and builds. Never really hit that last year. Because I think everybody still was feeling the glow of what they had just accomplished the year before. Do you enjoy game days as much now as you did at the beginning of your career? Do you still have the same, uh, I don't want to say it's it's nervousness, but the, the same like that you're in the middle of, of something special? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Still feel it. I still wake up on game day morning and I still feel it in my stomach. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and if I've often thought about this, people um, sometimes say to me, you know, how long do you want to do this? Because, I mean, it is coming up on 50 years. That's a long time. My stock answer is as long as I enjoy it. And, and part of enjoying it is feeling that tingle in the morning. If, if if I get to a point where it's Sunday morning and the Eagles have a game and I wake up that morning and it just feels like every other morning, then I'm going to know, yeah, you know what, I'm probably getting to the point where it's time to step aside. But I'm not there now. I mean, I, I still 
I still feel it, you know, and uh, good seasons, bad seasons, it doesn't really matter. I still feel it. So it's because game day is, it's, it's really special. And it's, it's a little different now in the sense that preparing for TV and preparing for writing as a newspaper is, uh, brings, to me at least, a, a higher level of anxiety. I mean, no, I mean, I'm struggling to write a newspaper story, but people aren't watching. Right. You know, in television, <laughs> if, I, if I'm having a bad day at the typewriter, nobody's watching me have a bad day. If I'm having a bad day on television, everybody sees it. So I think there's a little bit more, at least for me, there's a more of a nervous factor involved in television. So I'm curious, your whole career in Philadelphia, at the height of your newspaper time, when you become pretty high profile, ever consider jumping to New York or Washington or any overtures that were made even kind of that, you know, could have changed the space-time continuum of the Ray Dittinger career? Um, I had offers. I had offers. I had offers to go to New York. Um, uh, I had an offer to go to Chicago. I had an offer to go to Los Angeles. But I... Never really wanted to leave Philadelphia. I, I always thought that it was a, you know, born here, raised here, went to college here, got my first job here, never lived or worked anywhere else. And I always thought that that was um, a great advantage that I had, was that kind of institutional knowledge. You know, there's very little that happens Philadelphia sports-wise that I have to go pull a book off the shelf and look up a statistic. Uh, it's, it's here. I know it. You know, I don't. I don't have to. When I, if when I was a columnist writing baseball, I never used to have to look up the 1964 Phillies collapse. I lived it. I know it. I still have the scars. So I always thought that having been raised in this city and been raised in this sports culture, and being able to take that knowledge and that experience to every story that I ever wrote or talked about on the radio, I always thought it was a great advantage. Uh, so I was never that anxious to leave here. And I'm sure, you know, listen, doing what I'm doing, I love what I do. I, I love what I do. Uh, and I'm sure I could have loved it in Chicago. I'm sure I could have loved it in New York. But it wouldn't have been the same as loving it here. To be in another city watching the Eagles win a Super Bowl, would have, there would have been a real disconnect there. I kind of, it wouldn't have had the same kind of emotional impact on me as it did to be, be able to, to, to address it to a Philadelphia audience, people that could appreciate it. And knowing that you appreciate the same the way they appreciate it, just that c- connectivity uh, that I have is something I never really wanted to give up. The only job that I ever really seriously thought, really seriously thought about doing was I was offered a job uh, as the uh, number two man at NFL Properties, and this was a long time ago. They they offered me the job. They interviewed me at Super Bowl. <laughs> how long ago it was Super Bowl eight, and we were in Houston. And uh, they approached me about it after the uh, Super Bowl. I went home. They flew me out to Los Angeles and for about three or four days interviewed me and uh, offered me the job on the spot. And I would have been the number two guy at NFL Properties Publishing in Los Angeles. And we got so close. I mean, they, they showed me my office. I had, this, I had this corner office with a beautiful view of Wilshire Boulevard. Me and the, and the number one guy went out looking for a house. They found, we found a house in Woodland Hills. I mean, we were that close. And uh, so that would have been 1973 uh, that I really, came, I really came that close to taking a job with the league. It just was one of those things that uh, I had fairly recently married. Uh, we had just had our first child. It would have just been hard to relocate and move all the way across the country. Uh, and so while the opportunity I thought was really exciting – and I loved the people I was going to be working with. And I really kind of liked the idea of living in Los Angeles. 
I just thought, you know, it, this really isn't the right time in my life to do this. So I, I got called him back and said, I'm sorry, I can't. And then after that, I, all the newspaper stuff that came along, it was just another newspaper job. I already had one. This was something totally different. And all the other newspaper jobs, the New York Times talks to you. It's the New York Times. But still, it was, I never really, when it got right down to it, I never really, really wanted to leave Philadelphia. I mean, that, this is in my blood, and it always will be. Ray Dinger, thanks for joining us on One on One today. This was great. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Matt. So that'll do it for this week's show. One on One is a sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like what you hear and want to help us out, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. You can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on iTunes and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon Ten Sixty. Thanks again to Ray Dinger for joining us this week. I'm Matt Leon. Come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.